listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ in the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. Today I want to talk about a 10-letter word that's in your vocabulary. It's in my vocabulary, but it is all but vanished in our society. It's a 10-letter word that affects everything in life. If it is practiced in your life, it will revolutionize and transform your marriage. If it's practiced in your life, it will revolutionize and change all of your relationships. If we saw it rediscovered and practiced in our churches, we would see our churches revolutionized and absolutely transformed. And if those things happened, our entire nation would be radically, dramatically transformed. It's a 10-letter word that needs to not just be in our vocabulary, but to be in our lives, and particularly in the area of marriage and relationships. We're going to zero in on this one 10-letter word in its context, in its application, and its influence in regard to marriage and relationships, because all around us, if you haven't noticed, there are married people. All around us, there are separated people. All around us, there are divorced people. And all around us, there are remarried people. Everywhere you turn, everywhere I turn, people are married, divorced, separated, remarried. No place you can turn where marriage and relationships are not directly affected, directly impacted by this one 10-letter word. Turn with me in Luke chapter 16, verse 18. Luke 16, 18 in our Father's Word. See, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at one verse of Scripture and then other verses of Scripture that support it, but one verse of Scripture from our Father's Word in the Gospel of Luke as we work our way through it in its entirety. Luke chapter 16, verse 18. Everyone... Now, it's interesting the word that Jesus uses there, everyone. And so this is a universal statement that applies to you, and it applies to me. It applies literally to everyone. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, the word that's translated here as divorced or divorces means to let go, to send away, or to dismiss. And Jesus' teaching is very black and white. Jesus doesn't leave any gray here in the interpretation. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. This is powerful. Would someone like to take my place and take over from this point on? Because I have one of the most difficult challenges of speaking on this topic of divorce and separation and remarriage that anybody could try to tackle. And I'm going to try to do it in the next 30 minutes. Yeah, right. It's not going to happen. I'm going to do my best to try to whet your appetite, to try to put some things into your heart, into your mind that get you interested in digging deeper in the Word of God, get you interested in doing some self reflection, some self-analysis, more importantly, to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's what I'm hoping to do. 
it is not possible, so give it up right now. It's not possible for me to cover in 30 minutes or 40 minutes or in an hour or two hours all that the Bible says about divorce and remarriage and marital faithfulness and the circumstances in which divorce is acceptable and where it's not acceptable and separation is acceptable. But I do hope to whet your appetite enough and I do hope to present the word of God enough that you'll be able to deal with condemnation and guilt that you might be carrying around and you'll be able to deal with conviction that you might fall under. There's a difference between condemnation and guilt and conviction. Condemnation and guilt is the devil's work, and it's something that might have been heaped up upon you in regard to a relationship you might now be in, you might have been in. You might be under condemnation. The Bible says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus in Romans chapter 8. No condemnation, a vague general thing. You know, that light at the end of the tunnel. Here's how you know if you're under condemnation and guilt. The light at the end of the tunnel is a train, and it's coming to run you over. There's no hope in condemnation. There's no help in condemnation. All you feel is guilty and beaten down, and there's nothing you can do to make things right. That's condemnation. That's guilt. That's not God's work. That's man and the devil's, all right? But there is conviction for the believer, even for the unbeliever. The convicting work of the Holy Spirit, it's different than condemnation where there's no hope, no help. The convicting work of the Holy Spirit is where God speaks specifically to an area or areas of your life and shows you what's wrong and then shows you how to make it right. The light at the end of the tunnel in regard to conviction is Jesus himself. There is hope and there is help when God convicts. And you might be in one of those two camps, carrying around condemnation and guilt, or you might be in the camp of conviction where God will show you what the right step is to deal with what up to this point might be wrong. There's a difference. Now, when it comes to the area of relationships, many people are operating under this idea that the grass is greener somewhere else. The grass is greener somewhere else. You might be married. You might have a very good marriage, a very happy marriage. You might be unhappily married, or you might be somewhere in between. Usually, most of us are somewhere in between, and we have these peaks and valleys, but when we look at the general condition of our marriage, we're either happy or unhappy or somewhere in between. You might be separated, and you might be happily separated or unhappily separated. The circumstances might have been out of your control, but you might be separated. You might be divorced, maybe happily divorced for all I know. Maybe you haven't had your post-divorce party yet. I don't know. You might be sadly divorced. You might be the victim of somebody else's choices. You might be remarried, and in that remarriage, you might find yourself not to be as happy as you thought you would be being remarried when you thought the grass was greener. You might be unhappily remarried, and then again, you might be single, and at this point, you might be thanking God, thank you, Lord, that I am single. Who wants all that relationship stuff? But you know, when we think the grass is greener, one of the primary reasons why we think the grass is greener in somebody else's life, we forget the reason why the grass might be greener. See, the reason why grass is green 
and why it grows and why it might be growing in somebody else's life more than yours is because maybe they're watering their grass and you're not. Maybe they're fertilizing their grass and you're not. And here you are saying, the grass is greener. I wish I had what they have. But they're doing what you might not have been willing to do up to this point. They might be watering their relationship. They might be fertilizing their relationship. And they might be applying some of that 10-letter word that we're going to look at. That 10-letter word in their relationship, which is why the grass is greener for them and not for you. But you can have what they have. Maybe you can have more than what they have. Maybe your marriage or your relationship, you've got some baggage. Your spouse, it's always the spouse who has the baggage, right? Your spouse has some baggage that maybe other people in their marriage or relationship don't have. The fact of the matter is you don't know. Still waters run deep. You don't know what other people are handling in their relationship. Maybe you have more difficulty in your marriage than somebody else has. But your marriage can actually be better than them, even though they might be quote-unquote predisposed to a better relationship. Your marriage can be better than some couple that's quote-unquote predisposed if you are willing to water your grass, and if you are willing to fertilize your grass, if you are willing to apply some of that 10-letter word in your marriage, you can have a great marriage. You can have a better marriage. Every single one of us can have a better marriage if we're willing to water and fertilize and apply some of that 10-letter word. And if you're not married and thinking about married, if you're foolish enough to think about getting married after all this. Being sarcastic, of course. Then we're going to look at the best way for you to go into marriage if God gives it to you as a gift. By preparing yourself now while you're still single. There are ways that you can live and things that you can do right now while you're single that will prepare your yet-to-be spouse and you for a marriage that will be greener grass for other people to look at. Jesus helps us understand very clearly that marriage is hard work. It's difficult. In Luke 16, 18, let's look at the seriousness of marriage, the marriage covenant. Everyone who divorces his wife, who lets her go, sends her away, dismisses her, and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, in this particular passage in Luke 16, Jesus doesn't add the clauses that we find in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19. Look with me at Matthew chapter 19. Because it's important to interpret Scripture with Scripture. There is a reason why there are four Gospels and not just one. We are to read all four of the Gospel accounts. We are to read all 66 books of the Bible to get the clearest, most complete picture of what God is teaching. We're not only to look at individual words in a passage or a verse, we're also to look at the verses within a passage. And then the passages compared to other passages. And here we find a parallel account in Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, in regard to this idea of divorce and remarriage and adultery and the grounds 
biblically speaking, in the eyes of God that are permissible or that open the door in an acceptable way before God for divorce. Matthew 19.1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. See, again, we see this idea of a movement of God with many people following Jesus, trying to get close to Jesus, recognizing the kingdom of God is there. Verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's life for any cause? Sounds strikingly akin to what we see the serpent doing in the Genesis account. Did God really say you can't eat from any fruit in the garden? Twisting the words. And the Pharisees here looking at the letter of the law, the legal aspect, missing the spirit of the law. And they say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Look at Jesus in verse 4, his answer. He answered, have you not read? In other words, you guys have been reading but not paying attention. The Pharisees were reading the word of God, but they weren't really reading the word of God. And you know, the same thing can happen to you and to me as followers of Christ. We can read the word of God without really reading the word of God. It's got to get deep down into the recesses of our heart, deep into our gray matter in our minds so that it makes its way out into our mouths, our eyes, our hands, our feet. We've got to not just go through the motions of reading the Word of God, but reading the Word of God, applying the Word of God. Comprehension goes a long way to retention. Retention affects application, and that's why the Word of God is significant in your life and mine. It's the application of the Word of God, and Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. He says, haven't you read? Aren't you guys paying attention, you who have the Word memorized? Aren't you really reading? Aren't you comprehending? How how therefore can you apply if you're not comprehending? He says, have you not read? that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He's affirming Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24. Jesus is affirming the historical accuracy of the book of Genesis. And as we see Jesus doing repeatedly, he, he authenticates and validates all of the Old Testament by quoting it and referencing it and live, leaving it as it is, elevating it as it should have been to being the compass for all of life and all of living. So Jesus takes the count in Genesis to be literal, not figurative. He takes the idea of the marriage covenant to be literal and important and significant. And he brings us right back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. In verse 6 of Matthew 19, he says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And that would mean you too. It's not just some outside individual or some outside circumstance that poses a threat in your own marriage. If you're married or if you're about to be married or if you someday hope to be married, don't make the mistake of thinking that the the largest, most significant threat that could endanger your marriage for divorce or your marriage for separation comes from the outside. It could come from the inside. Are you a man? Are you a woman? Then you're included in that. 
What God has joined together, let no individual, including you, separate. Do not be your own worst enemy or your spouse's worst enemy in the context of your marriage because your marriage is significant to God. I know, and you know too, that marriage has been belittled in this culture we live in. Yes, it's been belittled. It's been decimated. It's been nearly obliterated, not only the context of one man and one woman, but even the definition of marriage. And if you were the devil, you'd do the same thing. You'd attack the very institution, the first institution, the primary institution that's supposed to reflect the glory of God. See, in the book of Ephesians, the apostle Paul talks about marriage between a man and a woman being something much more significant than between just a merely a man and a woman. It's supposed to be the representation of Christ's love for the church and the church's love for Christ. And if that's the case, wouldn't you want to attack that if you were the devil? That'd be the first thing you'd go after. And it'd be the last thing you end with. You would know that as the marriage goes, so goes the glory of God. And you hate the glory of God if you're the devil. You're jealous about the the glory of God if you're the devil. That's why you lost your place in the presence of God. It's because of the glory of God that you couldn't have. You wanted to make yourself like the Most High, not in character, but as the center of attention. And if a marriage represents the glory of God between two mere mortals, you'd attack it because if that gets attention, God gets attention. And if God gets attention, you don't get attention. That's why marriage is under attack today all around the world. And that's why you need to fight for your marriage, even if you're not yet married. It's not Woo! just about. It, it is not just about your happiness. Happy wife makes a happy life. Men, you want your wife to treat you like a king? Treat her like a queen. But your marriage is not just about sexual gratification. It's not just about having a nest where you're safe and secure and provided for. It's not just about having your needs met. It's about having God's need met, which is for the representation of his glory on the earth. Last time I checked, Jesus taught us how to pray by saying, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your marriage counts to God. The way you treat your spouse matters to God because people are looking at you and making a judgment call based on the quality or lack of quality in your marriage and deciding what they believe about God. Does Jesus really love the church? Well, men, do you love your wife as Christ loved the church? Does the church really love Jesus who gave himself for her? Well, wives, do you submit to your husband and love him in that kind of a way? It's much, much more involved in marriage than merely our individual satisfaction and happiness. In fact, Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels that in the resurrection, husband and wife will not be husband and wife any longer, 
Men and women will, men and women will not be married or given in marriage like the angels which are a class, but not a race. We are the human race. That's why we inherit the sin of Adam. That's why Jesus could be a one-for-one sacrifice on the cross, fully human, because you needed a one-for-one sacrifice, not a look-alike, but a real human being to bear your sin in mind. And that's why Jesus had to be fully God, because he had to be without sin as well. See, the purpose of marriage is not for eternity. It's for here and now, this side of eternity. And once you pass into, once you die, that's why we say, till death do we part. Once you die, you're no longer married. That object lesson that you've been experiencing, that you should be cherishing, nurturing, and clinging to is gone when the silver cord breaks, as Ecclesiastes says, when one of you dies. But until one of you does, until one of you does, those who are married have been given one of the greatest sacred privileges this side of eternity to understand what cannot be understood by mere words and mere reading, an object lesson that God has given to you a gift that maybe you've taken, I know I have, for granted. That God would love you so much that he would want you to know even more about his love that he'd give you a partner. And in the context of that relationship, that relationship would be so God-honoring that you'd be wooed and pursued to the presence of God more and more and more. It's all about the love of God. It's all about the goodness of God. It's all about the kindness of God. And it's all about a 10-letter word that will revolutionize your marriage and revolutionize your life. Look with me. Continue in Matthew chapter 19. Verse 7, they, the Pharisees, said to Jesus, when did, why then Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, we see Jesus doing this again, putting the teachings of the Old Testament on equal footing with his own. He's either blaspheming or he really has the ability as God in the flesh to put his own teachings unequal footing with the Old Testament. That's because Moses allowed it, because God allowed it, because of the hardness of your hearts, this idea of divorce. From the beginning, that was not the idea. It would be husband and wife. They would live forever in the presence of God in a sinless state, but then sin entered the world, and so did everything that sin brings with it, entered the world and created problems and difficulties, and it was because of man's heart, the hard-hearted people that God allowed for divorce. Jesus says in verse 9 of Matthew 19, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, the word that's used there is porneia, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Now at this point, we know that the disciples are really paying attention to Jesus because of their response. Look at verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Bingo. 
But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. See, the disciples understood the permanence of marriage, this side of eternity. They understood the significance of the marriage covenant. Jesus affirms the significance of the marriage covenant. And in our 21st century living here in the United States of America and other parts of the world, wherever you might be listening by podcast, I know, you know, we know, God knows that we've belittled the importance of marriage. It's a covenant between one man and one woman that is forever this side of eternity until somebody dies. One flesh. The idea of the natural world mimicking and reflecting the spiritual world, that when a marriage is consummated and sexual activity is only permissible and blessed by God in the context of marriage, when a marriage is consummated, that physical union demonstrates what we cannot see in the natural world, the spiritual union between Christ and the church, that spiritual oneness. And that's why sex is significant and only blessed only affirmed in the context of marriage. Any type of sexual activity, the word that's used there, sexual immorality, marital unfaithfulness, what's translated, pertains to some kind of sexual activity. It doesn't necessarily mean just a married man and a married woman coming together the way they should. I'm trying to be PG intentional here, not knowing who might listen. It doesn't just mean the context of procreating, even though procreating is a lot of fun. It's great in the context of marriage. In fact, God is so good that it's even fun to pretend you're procreating when you're not intending on procreating. Can I say that in church? Yes, I can. In the context of marriage, God made it. God made sexual activity between a man and a woman, and only a man and a woman in the context only of marriage. Otherwise, it's called porneia. It's called sexual immorality. And if you're married and something is happening between one of you and another person, it's called marital unfaithfulness. And the disciples pick up on this significance that Jesus is presenting here, and they gulp, and they say, this sounds very permanent this side of eternity. This sounds very significant. If that's the case, it's better not to get married. And Jesus' teaching for them is the same as it is for you and for me. If you're not prepared to be faithful and loyal to one man, if you're a woman, or one woman, if you are a man, until death do you part, then you better part now. It's better off not to get married because it's one flesh, because it's one spirit, and it's a representation of God's covenant with human beings, God's unity with those who have accepted him as Savior and Lord and God. Marriage is not what we've made it to be. It's not insignificant the way we think it is. Marriage is not just a more significant dating relationship with a few bits of ceremony thrown in. It's not just a greater involvement between two people in which you just want to have an elevated relationship with another person. It is a covenant in which you become one flesh with another person that mirrors and represents the union that Christ has with the church. Now, there are contexts in which separation between a married couple, two believers, is appropriate. And there are contexts 
in which divorce between two believers is permissible. And there are contexts in which divorce between two people is never appropriate. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is addressing these Corinthians, these people in the Greek culture who should have been eating meat, and yet they were still drinking milk. And they're asked, they've asked him a question apparently about marriage. Can you please tell us when marriage is appropriate, when it's not appropriate, when divorce is appropriate, when separation is appropriate? And this is what Paul begins to answer in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, see what I'm saying? They wrote to him. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations or to marry a woman because the implication here, the inference here is that you're only supposed to have sexual relations with a woman, men, or with a man, women, in the context of marriage. So that's why this is synonymously used. It's good not to have sexual relations with a woman or not to be married because, uh, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, sexual, sexual activity outside of marriage, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, physical rights. See, it's a right. And likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body. Isn't this amazing? But the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. In other words, don't use the withholding of sexual intimacy as a weapon against your spouse. Happens all the time. Don't use the withholding of sexual intimacy as a weapon, intentional or unintentional, from your spouse. Now, the good thing about talking about this is probably in about a month's time, we'll hear of some pregnancies throughout the church. You know, by withholding physical intimacy, which is supposed to take place in the context of marriage, by withholding that from your partner, you're actually sinning. Unless you separate by agreement both of you are on the same page. Look with me at verse 5 for the purpose of prayer. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Believers must not separate unless it's for a season to focus on prayer which means you might have marital difficulties. And they might be legitimate and they might be deep and I'm not trying to belittle them. My parents were divorced after 33 years. Terrible divorce. Terrible. Police were involved, restraining order involved. My father, once he was taken out of the house, never set foot back in the house except when he went to videotape under a court order what he could videotape in part of the divorce proceedings. It was terrible. I'm not saying that what you're going through or what you might go through is not significant. It can be hugely significant. The question is, was there sexual immorality of such a degree that it would fit in with what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19? That's the divorce clause. You can divorce when there is sexual immorality that is significant. And I would say even look with me at Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. Let's take a break here and look at Matthew chapter 5. We'll come back to 1 Corinthians 7, 5, but look at Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 31. 
It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus referencing the Old Testament. And now look at what Jesus says. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, that's the word porneia again, makes her commit adultery. Wow. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's pretty significant and pretty substantial. The grounds that we see Jesus speaking of, he sets a very high bar in regard to divorce and remarriage. And the instance in which divorce is allowed is in the context where one of you, the other spouse, has committed such a grievous sexual sin. And each case needs to be carefully looked at seriously and significantly because you can make excuses for anything. Oh, my husband looked at pornography on the internet. So therefore, after all, that's where the word porneia is the root of pornography. My husband looked at pornography. Therefore, I have biblical grounds for divorce. Well, has your husband ever looked at a woman lustfully, as Jesus said? Whoever looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Be careful you don't go by the letter of the law and miss the spirit of the law. How many of us men have never committed adultery in our hearts with another woman? You see what I'm saying? The idea is that the porneia, the sexual activity outside the context of marriage was so severe, so gross, so significant that it is grounds for divorce. In the meantime, what you are to do, what two believers are to do if there are marital difficulties and they cannot be resolved, by all means, get godly biblical counseling. By all means, get on your face before God for that season that Paul tells us we should. Get apart from each other to pray and seek God for the purpose of coming back together. 1 Corinthians 7. For the purpose of coming back together as a married couple, you must not, as a believer, separate unless it's intentionally for the purpose of seeking God and seeking God for the purpose of restoration and reconciliation in your marriage. Now, if there was adultery, gross sexual activity, Outside of your marriage, you do have biblical grounds for divorce. You might have biblical grounds for divorce. God knows your heart. And he's given you the witness of the Holy Spirit. He's given you the counsel of his word. And he's given you your conscience. All three of those. You know whether you're making excuses or not. More importantly, so does God. And you might make a decision that looks outwardly wonderful and permissible and spiritual to a whole lot of other people, but God knows the real reasons and the real motives of the heart. In fact, elsewhere in the scriptures, it says that God will judge the secret motives of men's hearts. There is biblical grounds for divorce if there is sexual activity outside the confines of that marriage. It does not mean you must divorce. It means that you may divorce. You can divorce guilt-free, condemnation-free. It doesn't mean that you must. It means that you can. God will not hold that against you. God will not condemn you for that. You just need to be honest to God, honest to yourself, honest to your spouse, and the first recourse is that there is another option out there. 
It's called reconciliation. It's called forgiveness. Imagine that. Imagine forgiving somebody as in God, Christ forgave us. There's no automatic if this, then that. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you have the weapon of forgiveness at your disposal, the opportunity for reconciliation. You must not separate unless for a time, which ultimately brings you back together for reconciliation and restoration, you must not divorce unless it's for marital unfaithfulness, and then you don't have to, you may. Now, you can remarry if your spouse divorces you and then remarries. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, look with me. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, which, by the way, is not necessarily adultery because the punishment for adultery was stoning, so this has to be something other than adultery, has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, and he sends her out of his house. This is not an endorsement of divorce. This is a provision for divorce because of the hardness of their hearts. And if he goes in verse 2 and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her or stops loving her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. The idea here is that if you're married to somebody and they divorce you and get remarried, you are free. However, you don't have to remarry, but you're free to be able to do that if you want to. Well, what happens if you get divorced, if your spouse divorces you and they don't remarry? Doesn't that put you in a pickle? Two people love Jesus. At least they say they love Jesus. They know him as their Lord and their Savior. Now they got to put their money where their mouth is in terms of putting that word love into action because it's a verb. One of them divorces the other. What's the innocent party supposed to do? Well, they could pursue reconciliation if they want to. Can pray, consider it as a separation, and diligently seek God, wait for God. There can be an instance where that person then might not remarry. The one who divorced them might not remarry. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, says this, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If that person divorces you and then acts like an unbeliever and acts royally against you and royally as if they're an unbeliever, there might be circumstances in which it is appropriate for you to get remarried. I can't give you, as much as you might want me to, a blanket statement that says in every instance this is clear and it's cut and dry because it's not clear and cut and dry. Because an instance that might be 
pornea might be gross involvement here, might not be the same as a flat-out, adulterous, ongoing affair. You've got to be careful as the spouse that you are exercising forgiveness and grace in the context of your marriage for the purpose of reconciliation, because that's what God did through Christ for you. And you've got to be careful, I've got to be careful, that we don't put words in God's mouth and requirements in our lives that alienate the process of forgiveness and restoration. There can be such an instance of extreme neglect or even abuse. Even an abusive situation which puts your life at risk, which was a situation between my mother and my father where there was a restraining order on purpose because of the threats against my mother. Does that mean that my mother had the right to divorce my father, which she didn't? My father divorced my mother. It meant that my mother had the right to separate from him and to pray and to seek restoration. But in the meantime, my father pursued divorce. My parents ultimately got divorced and my mother was free. See, at this point, there's some of us who, you might say, well, I've committed adultery. You know, adultery is not the unpardonable, unforgivable sin. But it is important to fully repent of it and to drive a nail in that casket, so to speak, so that you're not carrying around false guilt and false condemnation, but you're actually dealing with it. Adultery is not the unforgivable sin. Divorce is not an unforgivable sin. You might have gotten divorced for reasons other than what we find as biblical grounds in the scripture. You might be remarried now and say, doggone it, I wish somebody would have talked this clearly to me about marriage and remarriage and divorce before I got my divorce and before I got remarried. You've got to settle that issue. You've got to handle what's happening in your own life, the fact that you're divorced and that God can forgive You, for making a choice about divorce if it was not biblical grounds, there can be forgiveness and restoration and healing for that, for you. But you know what that 10-letter word is that makes a difference in a marriage, makes a difference in a relationship that will absolutely transform your life, transform your marriage, that when it's present, it will possibly save a marriage? possibly restore a marriage, prevent problems from happening in the first place. It's C-O-M-M-I-T-M-E-N-T, commitment. Commitment to your spouse or your spouse-to-be, but first and foremost, commitment to God. You know what happens if you married a person who's committed to God and you get married to them? You know what happens? If you get a person who's committed to God, you'll get a person who's committed to you. You get a person who's not committed to God, eventually they're not going to be committed to you. You get a person who understands the importance of C-O-M-M-I-T-M-E-N-T, commitment to God. They understand the importance of commitment within the context of marriage, and your marriage works. Your marriage goes higher and deeper 
that the marriage grows and it develops because you understand it's not about commitment to your partner only. It's first and foremost as a matter of the starting point, commitment to God. That's why it's important if you're a single person, your commitment to God is vitally important because you'll never be committed to people. You'll never be committed to one person in that unique marriage relationship if you're not committed to God. That's why the first place to start is your commitment to God. C-O-M-M-I-T-M-E-N-T, that 10-letter word. Commitment to God will overflow it to commitment in your marriage relationship. A lack of commitment to God will overflow into your marriage relationship. It's not just about being faithful to your spouse. It's not just about being committed to your spouse. It's all about commitment first and foremost to God who has given you or who might give you a spouse. The greatest gift you can give to your spouse is your commitment to God. The greatest gift that you can give to your spouse to be is your commitment to God because the greatest gift you can give to God himself is your commitment to him, your surrender to him, not your promises, empty promises that I'll do this and I'll do that, but commitment is surrender. Lord, I will be committed to you. I will listen to you. I'll follow your word. I'll follow the conviction of your Holy Spirit. Obey my conscience that you've given me. Obey your word. Obey godly counsel. Because then, when you're committed to God, you'll be committed to your marriage. Everything will change in your relationship. And you'll see that God will take what otherwise would crumble. All the things that you would fumble. All the things that would fall apart in your life. All of that will come together when you have C-O-M-M-I-T-M-E-N-T to God. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.